This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hi, I'm Michael Madsen, International Liaison Partner for BDO Canada. Welcome to Board at the Airport with Mike. This show is about doing business globally. Whether your business has international presence, is considering an international expansion, or if you're in the middle of revising your expansion plan, then this show is for you. To kick off our podcast, we want to share the story of a startup that had massive potential, innovative ideas, billions of investment dollars, and still failed. This is an episode I call, We Work, Not So Much. What do you think when I say workspace? Cubicles, ugly furniture, bad fluorescent lighting, death. Exactly. We work. At one time, the world's most valuable startup is the subject of the new series We Crashed, starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. It depicts the dramatic fall of the co-working phenomena on Apple TV. When We Work launched back in 2010, it was heralded as the future of our working lives. It was the buzzword for a generation of freelancers, startup founders, and mobile entrepreneurs who traded in their work-at-home scenarios or Starbucks laptop sessions for sleek co-working spaces and networking with free beer on tap. The sharing economy is on the rise. A recent study finds 72% of Americans have used a shared or on-demand service at least once. WeWork offers customized shared office spaces for entrepreneurs. Its officers are home to 10,000 companies, and WeWork is now valued to get this more than $16 billion. WeWork just launched WeLive, taking its concept from the office to the living room. A report from CBS back from 2016. So how was the WeLive concept supposed to work. So if we work is the sharing of space and we all have our private space but we also like to be part of a community, we live is the same thing. If you were to get an apartment in New York City today, you'd have to show 50 times rent, which no 24-year-old has. And then you'd get this horrible hallway with this very small unit that costs a fortune yeah. and you'd be by yourself. We live is the opposite. All we need is one month security deposit. We charge 30 to 40% less than it would cost an apartment and we give you shared common space. So even though you have your own kitchen and your own bathroom and shower, you can go to a chef kitchen, you can go to a screening room, you have a bar, and you have a lot of like-minded individuals that hang out every night and just share their experiences and prepare for the next day. WeWork CEO, Adam Newman. The company's proposition was as intoxicating as it was vague. At its height, it had locations in nearly every continent on the globe, was valued at $47 billion, and was planning almost literally world domination with scope to expand into gyms, homes, and even schools. WeWork's planned expansion of the We brand into the personal living space with We Live stalled at two buildings. And in 2021, they handed over management of the two We Live locations in Virginia and Manhattan to the owners of the buildings. WeWork's troubles began in August 2019, when the company's IPO filing revealed it had lost $1.9 billion the previous year and was on track to run through remaining cash. A crippling report from the Wall Street Journal in September raised concerns over how its controversial CEO Adam Newman managed the company, including possible illegal activities. From the first day that we started WeWork, it was about bringing people together. There's an energy that you feel. That energy is something that's hard to explain. It's something that either you feel it or you don't. We like to call it the We Generation. Adam Newman's escapades are now legendary, if not cautionary. 
His private jet trips may have involved some incidental transportation of marijuana across international borders. His wife may have fired employees for their bad vibes, and the company may have ended a meeting announcing layoffs with a performance by a member of Run DMC. SoftBank first made its multi-billion dollar investment in WeWork in 2017 through its $100 billion vision fund, which has also funded Silicon Valley startups like Uber. The Japanese technology giant invested a total of $18.5 billion in WeWork in the lead-up to its failed IPO, which Shark Tank star Kevin O'Leary called in May of 2019. I think he's brilliant. I think he's a fantastic entrepreneur, and he's doing this at the right time because that model has gone bankrupt multiple times before. What happens is you arbitrage the risk of short-term leases with long-term debt. So you go buy a building, you put debt on it, very often variable debt, it may reset every three to five years. When rates go up and there's an economic slowdown, is in a recession, you go bankrupt. So no, I won't be investing in that. And I've seen this movie many times before. But is he a great entrepreneur? Absolutely. If you invest in that, you should realize that's another money loser right now. And if the economy softens or rates go up, I think you're basically screwed. Under the financial scrutiny required prior to any IPO, the truth was revealed. WeWork was losing a ton of money. Its projections of the size of the market for shared office space was wildly optimistic. The fantasy of WeWork began to unravel, further complicated by several lawsuits hitting the company that year, most of which centered on race and gender discrimination and sexual harassment. Does WeWork's implosion pose a systemic risk? The company went from a $47 billion valuation to near bankruptcy in just six weeks. It's been a kind of a phenomenal story to watch. WeWork is facing a cash crunch. It's probably going to run out of money by the first half of next year. How and what is this company going to do if it doesn't hit the public market and raise that money? So what did they do? Days after founder and CEO Adam Newman stepped down, the company sold his hugely controversial private jet. Next, the company shed the equally controversial 20 family and friends of the founder, including Newman's wife, Rebecca, who worked at WeWork. Then came the job cuts. By November 2019, the company had cut 20% of its workforce, about 2,400 jobs, and SoftBank, a major investor in Uber and WeWork's main investor, was in control. What has become of WeWork? In October 2021, WeWork finally went public, two years after its disastrous first attempt as part of a merger and under new management, far from the chaotic and troubled founder and former CEO Adam Newman. The plans for a real-life We revolution came to a screeching halt. But this revolution will, in fact, continue as a television show. This is what tomorrow looks like. Let there be lights and wide open spaces. This isn't a place for people to punch in and out. WeWork's role is to elevate the world's consciousness. WeWork isn't just a company. It's a movement. Joining me is Peter Matutat, National Technology Leader and a partner at BDO Canada. Peter specializes in emerging technology companies, and for the past two decades, he has dealt with both public and private tech companies. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. It's not surprising that the WeWork story is being told through television. This is a real made-for-TV story. Peter, what is your take on this saga? Well, the WeWork story is definitely one with a lot of takeaways and a lot of lessons, and it, it contains a lot of the elements 
of the advice we give to our clients and I give to my clients as well. So first off, while everyone knows that the WeWork IPO failed in 2019, let's remember it now is a public company. It went public at $9 billion a couple of years ago, and this month is trading around $5 billion with revenues of two and a half to $3 billion. While the made-for-TV show was called We Crashed, WeWork is still around. It is still a viable business mm -hmm. with a multi-billion dollar valuation. And I'm going to give you one of my personal maxims that I tell people when I'm talking about tech company valuations. And this is what I apply to startups. I tell people, when they ask me how much is a startup worth, I tell them every startup is worth $3 million. Now, obviously, that isn't true, but let me run the numbers in terms of how I came up to that numbers and how kind of how valuation works in the tech space. So a typical startup needs seed money. Typical amount is going to be something like $500,000 to get off the ground and make things happen. So then you come to how much of a company is a founder going to give up for $500,000? It can't be too little or else no one's going to invest. So it has to be at least like 10%. No one's going to invest for less than 10%. But he can't give up too much. Otherwise, he has no further incentive. So he can't give up control in the first round of financing. So ultimately, a typical investment is something around 15 to 20% of the company for $500,000 or about one-sixth of the company. So if someone put in $500,000 for one-sixth of the company, well, the company must be worth $3 million. So every startup is worth $3 million. No one's actually going to buy that startup for $3 million. But what it is, is the concept of using money as a tool. So the $500,000 is a tool that's being used to build the company. Their founder is going to use it to hopefully build something substantial. The investor is hoping that's going to turn into a substantial company and they're all looking towards the future. So at the seed stage, normal valuation techniques don't apply. You can't simply multiply the 500,000 by six to get a valuation. And actually it's a very high chance that that $500,000 is going to disappear. So you just can't apply traditional returns, traditional valuation models, in the tech space fundamentally. I have a lot of my CFOs, they come to me and they say, you know, the investors are saying, I just have to spend my money. You know, I feel like I'm gonna be just losing money. They're not concerned about profitability. And that's true to a degree. They do care about profitability. They just don't care about profitability today because what they wanna do is they want to see growth because that's where the real value is gonna be. And that's what WeWork was trying to do with all that money they had, once again, taking it to an extreme. Now, WeWork shows what happens when you just say, batten down the hatches, all we wanna do is grow. We're gonna spend billions and you're gonna grow at all costs. They received the billions, tried to grow to take over the world. That was ultimately their goal. Didn't quite happen. So you end up with a bit of a, Collapsing your valuation from 47 billion, maybe considered down to the 5 billion that they are today. How does a company know when it is the right time to expand? Key thing, what's the demand for your product? What are your customers telling you? How much do they like your product? Do you think you're going to get customer acceptance beyond your core customer base? At any point in time, you have a certain number of customers. You're starting out maybe you have five customers, maybe you have 100 customers. How do you feel about the effort that's going to be required to obtain those additional customers? What do you think the marketplace is ultimately for your business? And that can help you decide of like, you know what, I think there's a lot of demand here. It's going to be worth me making the investment. And let's take away the VC market or the WeWork example and just more the founder and the, the entrepreneur who's got a $5 million business. And he wants to make a decision of, do I want to start taking some of my current profits and putting them into marketing and going forward? I think he really needs to make that assessment of, is he getting the sense of the demand for his product that's out there? We heard about the leadership challenges WeWork faced. How important is strong leadership to a company's expansion plans? I tell you, the, the WeWork story is a really good example of leadership 
in action and leadership a little bit in action as well. You know, in my 30-year career, I've seen a lot of people call themselves leaders. Ultimately, most of them are bosses. They're more bosses than leaders. They have a title, they have a job. But in the tech world in particular, the startup world, you see a lot more real leadership. That's where I've seen the clearest examples of actual leadership where you have people who are followers. You don't have employees, you have followers. It's beyond the employer-employee relationship. They're actual devotees. They're people with belief, especially in that zero to 50 employee stage where the staff really know the founders well. That's where I've seen the truest forms of leadership in my career. And the founder makes such an impact at that stage of the company. And in tech, it can be vision, it can be charisma, it can be sales, it could be just really good coding ability, really good technical knowledge, or all of those factors combined. But that's where that personal charisma can make a huge difference. And it's really important that stage when I'm dealing with my clients who kind of fit that mold is it's really important for them to make sure they have the right focus and understand their influence on the organization as a whole and a difference that they can make. Now, that becomes a lot harder as the organization grows. The founder all of a sudden can't be meeting with all the customers, can't motivate all the staff. And that's where you get to that inflection and that transition point of Once you get past 50 employees, is the founder the right person to be taking the company forward? Peter, you work with a number of tech companies. What advice do you have for any company looking to expand globally? You know, one of the most important things is to think about why you're ultimately going to go global. Why are you going to another country? What it should be, the right answer is you see an opportunity to effectively scale the business. What you don't want to do is multiply the business. Your goal is not to create 10 of your current business in 10 different countries. You want to be able to scale. But in simple terms, you want to make sure you understand why you're going global. In a lot of cases, if you're a Canadian company, you want to go to the U.S. because it's a much bigger market. It makes all the sense in the world. If you're a European company, a lot of times the same thing. You want to go to the U.S. because it's a very big market. And if you're a U.S. company, you want to go global because that's a direction you want to go. But you want to understand why you're doing it. And you want to make sure you've done your research and your homework to understand if it's going to be successful or not. Markets are very different around the world. And you want to make sure you have those fundamentals in place to have that work. If companies are currently considering or working on their M&A plan as part of their international expansion, how can we help them? The best thing BDO can do is we do what we do best to help our clients make their lives easier. If you're looking to expand into another country, you're looking to develop an international strategy, your goal is not to grow your finance department. Your goal is not to grow your accounting department. You're going into another country either for development resources or for sales resources, that's where you want to focus your attention. So the best thing you can do is if you're going into another country is say, you know what, I'm going to have BDO take care of the back office. I'm going to have them take care of my taxes, my sales taxes, my workers comp, my payroll, take care of my bookkeeping. Then I'm going to focus on what's important. We have a lot of clients where they know when they come to a new country, they go to the local BDO office and we're all over the world. Hard to find a country you're going to expand to where BDO isn't already there. And they say, you know what, I want BDO to just take care of my back office for the first two years. Let's see what happens after two years, and then I can decide how I want to handle things going forward. Thank you, Peter. Peter Matutet, National Technology Leader and a partner at BDO Canada. My guest on this episode of Board at the Airport. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. From learning from mistakes to social justice, Our second entry on Discovery deals with making sure sight is an option for all. 
This is our third installment from Seva Canada. Welcome to The Power of Sight, a three-part podcast series by Seva Canada. Almost everyone will need access to eye care services during their lifetime. Seva, an international development organization, has restored sight of over 5 million people and helped prevent and treat visual impairment for millions more in low and middle income countries. In this episode, we discuss equity. Everyone deserves the right to high quality eye care, regardless of where they live, their religion or gender and sex. Save a Canada believes everyone has an equal right to sight. Most of the world's blind are women and girls, a fact that was discovered through research supported by Save a Canada. Donors help women and girls overcome barriers to accessing eye care, barriers that include lack of education and financial resources, and limited power in making decisions. When people can see and are able to lead healthy, productive lives, they can lift themselves and their families out of poverty. Entire communities have a chance of a better, brighter future. In this final episode, we look at how Save a Canada works to ensure equity in access to quality eye care services. It's estimated that 90% of the world's blindness exists in low and middle income countries, a problem vastly skewed by geography and by gender, as women and girls who are blind outnumber men and boys. Save a Canada's Penny Lyons says biology is not the reason. There's not much difference between men and women, except that men typically have more ability to access funds to to get their eyesight treated. So that's why you'll find more women who are blind or near blind is because they don't have the power to use family funds to get treated. The numbers were borne out in a landmark study done by Save a Canada. Program director, Dr. Ken Bassett and Paul Courtright of the Kilimanjaro Center for Community Ophthalmology led the research. So when we looked at the actual underlying number of women who have blindness, it's the same as men. The underlying need is the same. The difference is access to care. So we found that because of the lack of access, there's substantially more women that remain blind. In fact, we found that two out of three blind people in the world were women. And the solution was to provide them greater access. Paul Courtright has witnessed that inequity firsthand. So a particular story that resonates with me is a woman I met in Malawi who had cataract and she had her cataract for years and really was, you know, had very lousy vision, you know, almost blind from it. And she had not been able to get surgery, even though she had requested it because there was no social support within her family in order to get surgery. Her husband did, essentially did not agree that she needed surgery or, and would not support her to get surgery. And in Malawi at that time, surgery was free of charge. So, you know, it was not an issue of big chunk of change. It really was an issue of value placed. Well, her husband died. And within a week of her husband's death, she was in the hospital and my wife was doing surgery on her. And after surgery, it was like a different person was in front of us. She felt empowered. She felt that she had a, a new life and that her future, even though you know she was probably about 60 and 65 years of age, she was considered a grandmother, but she figured that she had a huge amount to give to her family that she had not been able to do in the past. 
And so it was just kind of a reawakening of, of her life. The cost is an obstacle that also affects mostly women, especially those in remote communities, where Elizabeth Kashiki works with the Kilimanjaro Center for Community Ophthalmology to identify those in need and bring them to urban centers for treatment. They don't have money to go. They have never been there before. They need someone to escort them. If they get the permission to the husband, they also need someone to escort them to those big cities, to the hospital. And not just in Africa, Paramidakwa faces the same challenges in Nepal, getting women to make the journey that can often take days. Like if it's more than one day, because, you know, women, uh, women have all the responsibility of cooking, cleaning, taking care of the kids and the elderly. So they don't want to leave the house for a longer duration of time and it's difficult for them. The inability for women to drop responsibilities at home and travel became a sobering lesson for Dr. Levy Kandeki. The Burundian ophthalmologist admits he didn't think gender inequity was a problem until he ran an ad on radio. We said, uh, if people, they can come to us, we will do the surgery for free. And we were so surprised. 80% of people coming were men. Dr. Levy Kandeki, who has worked with Save a Canada to establish a network of self-sustaining community eye care facilities across his country, realized the importance of reaching women and girls closer to home. When you screen somebody in his own community, we will tell the community this lady needs to come. And it's like the whole community deciding and pulls the lady to go to, to get the surgery. The loss of vision compounds the difficulties many women and girls already face in their lives from a young age. For example, in rural areas of Nepal, where Paramidakwa says girls aren't valued as much as boys. And also in Nepal, you don't want to spend money on a girl child because they say that, oh, she is going to be get married and going to a different house. Like, why should we invest in a daughter? And blindness can make an already difficult life even worse. But in rural places, there are still challenges. And being a woman and a blind, you can imagine the life, uh, everything like education, uh, well-being. You know how the people treat you and the men, how they treat. So um, it's, I think it's, it's very scary, I would say. And yet, the benefits of staying in school are clear. It's estimated for every year a girl stays in school, her income rises by 10 to 20 percent. And for women, access to eye care also produces significant economic results. A study of women employed as tea pickers in India showed that when they were given glasses, their productivity went up by more than 20 percent simply by being able to see better, an important consideration in countries where women and men tend to keep working into old age, years in which eyesight declines. Save a Canada's Dr. Ken Bassett says progress is being made, but gender inequity is still a major obstacle. Oh, it's, it's huge. It's like everything else that women face. It depends on a whole range of cultural values, uh, family level decisions, economic priorities, ability to get support, ability to move outside of the home, to travel with and without men. Uh, so most of these patriarchal societies, uh, you need to approach and work with men to agree that, that women are in need and deserve services. So it's taken decades. 
but it's taken local initiatives to take it on and to deal with it. And a lot of the time is working with women and women's groups to help one another uh, to get these services. So it's, um, it's still going on. I mean, the problem isn't solved. We know in places in Nepal, they've been very successful because of a lot of the Seva work. Other parts in Nepal, they're still just the same inequity. And it's still a problem for girls. While blindness in women has gone down by 10%, girls are still significantly less likely to receive eye care compared to boys. In Nepal, where we, we now have more women than men getting services and less blindness in women than men because of these initiatives, but we still have two out of three children coming in for care are boys. So the struggle to get girls in is sort of the new frontier, and that's the new challenge. Well, not the new challenge, but the residual challenge in, in trying to create some sort of gender equity. And it's a challenge at the forefront of Save Canada's efforts. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a number of things you can do or an organization does to ensure gender equity. But one of the first things that we need to do or that every organization needs to do is to, is to do a study to determine who is blind in your population to first prove that it's going to be more women than it is men, likely. And then we focus on the women by using women's groups to identify in any community, and they could be all different kinds of women's groups identify those women who need treatment and they support those women and they encourage those women and they make sure those women come to a screening camp and they bully the men to make sure the women get the treatment. I've, it, particularly in Africa, it's, it's like that, where the African women, particularly in the microfinance groups, I mean, they are take charge kind of women. And if they're given a job, by God, they are gonna do a good job of it. It's a delicate balance in providing development with dignity, working in a different culture, respecting local values, and yet still trying to ensure that women and girls receive badly needed care. Paul Courtright. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not in a position to change societal norms or cultural norms. That said, uh, one of the activities that we set up and we set this up in every setting where we organized outreach was to have a counselor in place at outreach. And the focus of the counselor's work was not so much to talk to the woman, it was to talk to the husband or the sons because they are the ones who make the decision. So, you know, we have very little ability to change cultural norms but if we can change an understanding of the value of surgery and a woman's place in the household, then I think over time it will improve women's roles and their contribution. So we have to address it through programs like having good counseling and a counseling that really focuses on the male members of the household rather than just on the women. And in Tanzania, Elizabeth Kashiki says times are changing. Yes, it is getting better. Seva Canada is, is the pioneer of gender inequities in international arena, I would say. So we see changes because of the strategies that were put in place. And in the worldwide, many of the NGOs are talking about gender inequities and how to bridge the gap. So we see things are moving on forward, and it's positive. 
progress that's been supported by Save Canada and its donors for more than four decades. Building relationships, setting up programs, and training local eye care personnel at all levels at facilities like the Kilimanjaro Center for Community Ophthalmology in Tanzania. I mean, I've known and interacted with Save Canada for hmm, probably 30 years now. They've always said, how can we help you? The other thing that's impressed me about Save Canada is that the individuals within the organization have really taken upon themselves to learn as much as they can about the issues so that they can speak authoritatively and with confidence. Because if you're a organization like Save Canada and you're talking to a potential donor, you need to be able to be honest with them, be upfront with them, to inform them so that they make uh, a decision on how to spend their money based upon what is good science and good practice. And I think Save Canada has always done that exceedingly well. We're really good at what we do. We are efficient, we are impactful, uh, effective, we're compassionate, we do really good work. We make sure that the work that we are doing is what is needed and will we'll provide the best care for the most people. Um, eye care is, so, is something that is so fundamental and so necessary. And when we're talking about cataract, it is just so easy to fix. It's so easy to fix, it's almost criminal that there's anybody blind from it. You can ensure everyone has access to the power of sight. Visit seva.ca. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.